0: Our text this morning, as we hear from the living God and his word, is 1 Samuel chapter 27, verse 1 through chapter 28 and verse 2, as we continue in our long series in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. I'd like you to keep your finger there in 1 Samuel 27, but to begin, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 14, and that is on page 770 in the church Bibles that are on the table. Matthew chapter 14, and we are beginning to read in verse 22. Matthew 14, verse 22, you'll recognize this episode. Immediately he, that's Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat When he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why do you doubt? And I want to think about those words of Jesus to Peter, just for a moment. Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And if I may fill that out just a little bit, it seems to me that Jesus is saying, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt my words? Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. The wind was against them. The waves were high. And despite the danger, Peter responded in faith. Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water, which at that point doesn't mean the serene waters of a still lake, right? These are the waves Peter walks on. Until something happens in verse 30. Until Peter saw the wind, it says, and was afraid. Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid, said the Lord. And in one moment, Peter trusts those words of Jesus as he walks on the water. And in the next moment, he doesn't. And he begins to sink. Why? Why? Because he saw the wind, the text says. And I think the key point is that the wind hadn't changed, you see. The waves had not suddenly become higher. No, the change wasn't in the waves. The change was in Peter. Jesus says, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt. Now, go back where you have your finger in First Samuel. We'll, we'll leave Matthew now. You don't need to save that spot. Go back and look at that first verse of First Samuel 27, because I'm convinced it's the first verse that's the key to the whole chapter we're looking at this morning. First Samuel 27, verse 1. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. And just stop there. Because if you were with us last week, or if you know anything about where we're at in the narrative of 1 Samuel, verse 1 of chapter 27 should sound wrong to you. Where was David at in his heart only two verses back in chapter 26, verse 24 from last week? Do you remember this if you look there? Chapter 26, verse 24, David says to Saul, who's been hunting him since at least chapter 19, he says after he'd spared Saul's life for a second time, Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. There's the faith of David. Confident, trusting in the Lord and in his promises. And it comes as the high point. We got there. It came as the high point, the culmination, if you will, of a long stretch of narratives that we've been considering for weeks now. David's experience had been again and again what Chapter 23, verse 14 had said that Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into Saul's hand. Do not fear, Jonathan had said to David in chapter 23, verse 17. Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel. Those were words of encouragement from the Lord through Jonathan to David. It was the reiteration of the promises of God to David in a moment of need back in chapter 23. David knew it was true. So in chapter 24, verse 15, after David had spared Saul's life the first time in En Gedi, remember what he said, chapter 24, verse 15? May the Lord therefore be judged and give sentence between me and you, Saul, and see to it, and plead my cause, and deliver me from your hand. That's where David was at, trusting the Lord to deliver. And when Abigail came to him in chapter 25 to stop him from carrying out his murderous intent against Nabal, remember that episode, what did she say? Verse 28 of chapter 25. The Lord will certainly make my Lord, that's David, a sure house. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. He shall appoint you prince over Israel, she told him. And David had... Believed it. And then we come into chapter 27, and what does it say? Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. That should come as a shock, dear friends. We're not prepared for this in the narrative at this point. And that seems to be part of what the narrator intends. The sharp juxtaposition of belief and unbelief, of faith and little faith, to use Jesus' expression, That's part of the point here. And I think in the way the narrator puts it in verse 1, we are to understand that it wasn't some new turn of events that suddenly required David to leave Israel. It wasn't some new external threat that precipitated David's action in this regard. The waves hadn't suddenly become any higher. In fact, nothing new had happened. Except, of course... In David's mind and thoughts. Because evidently, David had begun to think differently about his situation. And in doing so, he'd left no room for God. I wonder if it struck you that the Lord is not mentioned in this chapter. This is the same David who said as he approached his confrontation with Goliath in chapter 17, verse 37, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. This is the same David who said to Abishai in our text last week, speaking of Saul, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him. Or his day will come to die or he will go down into battle and perish. And now? Now I shall perish, David says. And he uses the same unusual Hebrew verb that he'd used in speaking to Abishai of Saul. Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. That's supposed to feel jarring, brothers and sisters. I think that's what the narrator intends. Keep in mind, there were no chapter divisions or verse numbers in the original Hebrew. Between the end of our chapter 26 and the beginning of our chapter 27, of course, in your Bibles, you have some white space, right? And a big heading there and a big number there that seems to create some kind of division. That's not in the original it's belief and unbelief, faith and little faith coming from the same person. And they're right next to each other in the text. And once we get over the shock of it, let me ask you, who among us can't relate to that? Do you not relate to that? That there are moments of great Moral and spiritual triumph in our lives when righteousness and faithfulness prevail, and then something changes. It may not be even a big thing, and we lose our focus, and we see the wind and the waves, and we're afraid again. And Jesus' words to Peter could be spoken to us. Oh, you of little faith. Why did you doubt? Which, so by now you can tell that my interpretation of 1 Samuel chapter 27 is that this whole episode is a massive failure on David's part. Right? That is not a given. You can read alternative interpretations of chapter 27. Mine is... This is a failure. I think David becomes a shadow of his former self. Let me just survey here the content of the chapter to explain for you what I'm seeing, okay? So at least you see how I'm reading. And I won't present the alternative read in detail. I'll just walk through it. And then I'll have a couple points to make at the end. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines, David says to himself in verse 1, which is exactly what he does. And it's the Philistines we're talking about here. Israel's bitter enemy. As we've seen repeatedly in 1 Samuel, the role of the king of Israel is to defend Israel from the Philistines, not join them. And now the fact that they're not a neutral party is precisely what David seems to count on in his calculation because he figures he'll escape out of Saul's hand if he goes there. So in verse 2, he offers his services and the services of his men to the heathen ruler Achish of Gath in the land of the Philistines. We learn in verse 3 that David intended this to be a long-term situation because it says all the families of the men came with them and they lived with Akish, it says at Gath, which means they must have put themselves under the authority of Akish because you don't live with a king except under his sway. And early on, it seems David might have figured he'd done the wise thing. His strategy had worked because we read in verse four, and when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. David had relief from Saul. Free from Saul's pursuit for the first time since chapter 19. Which, I mean, think about that. David had to be worn out at this point. Tired. He had men and their families to look after. So Gath may be in Philistine, but Gath certainly beats a cave, no? So David's plan works. We don't know what had happened that led to David finding favor in the eyes of Achish, but clearly he had, which is a real change since chapter 21 when David last went to Gath, if you remember that episode. But things are different now for whatever reason, and so David's request works as well. David asks Achish for a country town just a town, away from Gath. Akish grants him Ziklag. And Ziklag's location isn't totally certain. Most scholars seem to think it was south of Gath, probably near the border of Philistine and Judean-controlled areas. And so for 16 months, David lived there, verse 7 says, on the border between Philistine territory and Israelite territory. But it's then that we learn that not only had David's plan worked and David's request worked, but David's deception is working too. Because he's not just hanging out in Ziklag, is he? Beginning in verse 8, we read about how David and his men become desert raiders and they would attack these bands of Geshurites, Gerzites, Amalekites, people groups in the vicinity Verse 9 describes it, and David would strike the land, would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camel, the garments, and come back to Akish, naturally, because the king has to get his share of the spoils. And then David and his men get the rest. And yes, groups like the Amalekites and the Gesherites were known opponents of Israel. We don't know anything about the Gerzites who are mentioned here. But David's motivation in completely wiping out the people in these attacks is made clear in verse 11. Look there, the narrator says, and David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, so has David done, which is an issue. Why? Because David was all the time lying to Akish about who he was attacking. That's what verse 10 says. When Akish asked Where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah. You hear that? Judah. His people. He was telling Akish he was attacking Israel from his base in Ziklag on the border. Or he would say, against the Negev of the Jerhamelites, I don't know who they are. Or against the Negev of the Kenites. Remember the Kenites. These were the allies of Israel whom Saul had spared when he was to attack the Amalekites back in chapter 15 and didn't even do that successfully, but he had let the Kenites out of the way, right? So we've got David lying to Akish about who he's attacking, killing every person in his raids while keeping all the sheep, oxen, and donkeys, which means parenthetically that if you're going to try to defend David here and say he's executing holy war against the opponents of Israel, that's not what he's doing. Because you don't get to keep the livestock when you do that. God didn't instruct David to do this. And at the end of verse 11, it says, Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. Which brings us to the gut punch line of chapter 27 in verse 12. Which says, and Achish trusted David thinking, he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel, therefore he shall always be my servant. I mean, what a summary of the situation David's gotten himself into here, right? The Philistine king trusted David on the basis of David's lies supported by David's ruthless policy of extermination. So on one level, David's plan and David's request and David's deception seem like They're all working out. But then it's verses 1 and 2 of chapter 28 where we find out where it gets him. Because now, Akish decides it's time to attack Israel. Maybe David should have seen this one coming. And he knows who he can count on to help lead the charge, right? Chapter 28, verse 1. Understand that you, David, and your men are to go out with me in the army. David's cock. And so verse 2 of chapter 28, he answers somewhat slippery, slippery, slippery answer. David said to Akish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Akish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. And so here we are. David's decision to escape to the land of the Philistines led him to lie to the king of Gath about what he was doing. And to cover up that lie required that he slaughter every human being of the various groups he attacked. And then all of those lies meant that Achish is ready to trust David. And now the anointed future king of Israel is about to be arm in arm with one of the Philistine rulers in a military assault on his own people. So maybe escaping Saul seemed like a good thing to do. But not now. Now David's in a position to be dubbed a traitor. He's risked the whole ball game. Do you see? All because he figured he just needed relief from Saul. Be careful of the if-only way of thinking, if only I could escape this problem in my life, it would all be fine. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, where did this all start for David? Well, the narrator says very little in by way of evaluation of what is happening in this text. Have you noticed that? The narrator gives no perspective, good or bad on this passage, except in verse 1, where he says it started with what David said in his heart. And what was that again? Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. Friends, David was afraid because David forgot God. And I've said it, but it's key here. The Lord's nowhere to be found in this chapter. There's no evidence that God is in David's thoughts here. In fact, it's just the opposite. He's convinced of the exact opposite thing to the promises that God had made to him and that others had spoken to him. And even beyond that, there's no mention of how the Lord evaluates any of what has happened here. I think because the narrator lays it out in a way that we know the evaluation it deserves. I think this is a massive failure on David's part. And we have to wait until chapter 29 to learn how the Lord intervenes to deliver David from the harmful results of his behavior. Let me offer two takeaways from this chapter as I conclude this morning. The first takeaway I've already alluded to, but it, it is for me the key point here, I think. Brothers and sisters... Spiritual victories are never permanent realities. Spiritual victories are never permanent realities. It's not possible for us in this life to reach this place of perfection where we are able not to sin. And I say it a lot. It's one of the things I say. But the life of faith is not an ever-upward linear progression. It's a roller coaster. All of us will have moments of spiritual victory as David did. And we will have moments of failure as David also experienced. But the Bible everywhere calls us to fight against such failures. To put to death the deeds of the body, as Paul puts it. And I think verse 1 gives us the, the important clue regarding a key way that we can do that in our lives. And it's all about what we say in our hearts, isn't it? Or more literally, you could translate verse 1, what we say to our hearts. We do not know how much time passed between the end of chapter 26 and the beginning of chapter 27. There's no reason to think that this is something that happened just overnight to David. But... Perhaps over some amount of time, however long it was, David was talking to himself and what he kept saying to himself determined his action. Do you see that? Dear friends, what you say and what you keep saying to your souls will direct your way. And I think we all constantly do this. We constantly talk to ourselves. (laughs) Remember how Jesus depicted the farmer whose silos and bank accounts were full? And, and he said in that parable, the farmer says, I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. We chuckle at that, but we know it's true. Or positively, you could have a look at Psalms 42 and 43, and, and you know some of those Psalms. Here's Psalm 42, verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? You hear what the psalmist is doing there? Hope in God. He's speaking to himself. He's saying something to his own heart. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Here's the applicational end of chapter 27, if you will. What's your inner monologue like? What do you say constantly to your heart? Because somehow, contrary to Yahweh's record of protecting David and to Yahweh's promises that came via Jonathan, via Abigail, David in chapter 27 is certain he'll perish at the hand of Saul. So instead of trusting God's word, he trusts the security that he arranges for himself in Philistia. How do you avoid doing that in your life? How do you trust the Lord in your life? when the wind is strong against you the waves are high how do you have faith and not be afraid answer by talking truth to yourself over long stretches of time, by speaking to yourself the truth about God and his promises, which means, parenthetically, that it's for good reason that the most common sermon applications are what? Read your Bible. Pray. Come to church. Join a small group. Right? Why? because you've got to be careful what you speak to your heart, brothers and sisters. Is God in it? If not, why not? That's the first takeaway for me, more briefly. More briefly, here's the second takeaway for me. And it seems so obvious, but I think it's important. The second takeaway for me is that David isn't Jesus. (laughs) David isn't Jesus. And I mean that on different levels. I, of course, mean it technically. David was a Messiah. David was an anointed one. David was a future king, but he wasn't the Messiah. There can be no mistake at that point, right? David wasn't the seed of the woman that would crush the serpent's head. referring to Genesis 3, verse 15. David wouldn't take away the sin of the world and then rule in perfect justice and equity. That's the king we're waiting for in this Advent season. The Lord is the ultimate king of his people, as we've been saying from the start in 1 Samuel. But seeing that David isn't Jesus also helps us to better understand ourselves, I think, and this is where I want to end, because as much as I've tried to say from the start of this whole series that we'll end up disappointed with David. You know, this week, I still found myself disappointed at the fact that David disappointed me. Does that make sense? Because I guess I'd become pretty pro-David in my heart, I think. I've been moved in recent weeks by the suffering that David endured and the affliction and the hunting and and the running from Saul. And I found this week I didn't really want to know the truth about him in the way chapter 27 presents it. I was disappointed in a way that maybe said something about me. And maybe what it says is that somewhat to my surprise i could pretty easily fall into a certain kind of hero worship of exalting figures like david in the bible or maybe of other christian women or men in today's world and forget somehow that they will disappoint me because they aren't jesus And for as much as I thought I knew that, I still found myself surprised somehow to be confronted by the fact that David, the chosen anointed servant, is in the end made of the same stuff as I am, as all of us are, that he was a man with a nature like ours, to use the James 5 language, in himself more than capable of doubting God, of giving way to fear, of self-protective action with no reference to God. Or to put it another way, I guess I was a bit surprised to realize afresh that David possessed all the weaknesses that led to Saul's downfall. Which makes the only difference in the end between Saul and David. What? Only the grace of God, brothers and sisters. Only the grace of God. Akish had been a fool to put his trust in David. But I guess I realized maybe I'd done a little of that myself too. And we certainly can admire and seek to emulate the faith of others. But let's remember that in the end, only Jesus is Jesus. And only Jesus will never disappoint us. Because, as Deacon Marion put it this week at our pastoral meeting, the hero of the Bible is the Lord. That's not a bad lesson to learn from a chapter like 1 Samuel 27. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.